0: How? How do I not avenge myself? How do I leave it to the, to the wrath of God? He says, because the Bible tells me so. Because we have God's revelation. We have the scripture. You're listening to a sermon series titled, Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit ThisIsShoreline.com. Well, being much concerned about the rise of denominations in the church, John Wesley tells of a dream that he had where he, in the dream, was ushered to the gates of hell. And... At the gates of hell, he asks, are there any Presbyterians here? And the answer was yes. Are there any Baptists here? Yes. Are there any Episcopalians or Methodists? And the answer was yes, every time. Well, being much distressed, Wesley was then, in his dream, ushered to the gates of heaven. And there he asked the same question. Are there Presbyterians here? Are there Baptists here? Are there Episcopalians? Are there Methodists? And the answer to each of these questions was no. No. Well, then who is in heaven? And the answer came back, there are only Christians here. One of the most unhealthy churches, at least that we're aware of in church history, was the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth had members of the church, imagine this, getting drunk during communion. They were suing one another in legal battles. They misunderstood and they abused spiritual gifts. And above all that, they even celebrated a man who was walking in unrepentant sexual immorality, which the world, of course, celebrates, but that should not even be named among believers. And if these things weren't enough, Paul begins his letter to the church in Corinth with these words. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people so good old Chloe told on the church told Paul that there's quarreling among you my brothers what I mean is that each one of you says I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ is Christ divided was Paul crucified for you Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Look at that for a minute. Notice how he appeals to this divided church in the city of Corinth. He appeals to them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Corinthians were dividing over names. Even though they were all in Christ, they were forming factions and cliques and groups based on who their preferred church leader was. Well, we follow Paul. Paul, the, of course, doctrinally solid writer of scripture. Oh, well, that's good for you. We follow Apollos. Apollos eclipses Paul's speaking ability any day of the week. He's an exceptionally gifted teacher. And some of them said, well, that's fine for you too. We follow Cephas, a.k.a. Peter, one of the OG, one of the original uh, disciples, apostles. We go way back. We're 30 years older than you. And the super spiritual may have said, well... We don't follow any mere man, we follow Jesus. In effect saying, I, never follow. I don't make myself accountable to any pastor. And so Paul asks the question, wait a minute, is Christ divided? If all of us are called by his name, baptized into his name, saved by his name, then we're all united in his name and there, therefore there should be no division along any lines. One of the elephants in the room, when we talk about Christianity, is how divisive we are, or how divided we are. Remember, Jesus said these words to his disciples in the upper room, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. By your Christian t-shirt. That's what he said. It's it's there in the Greek. No, he didn't say that. By your bumper stickers that are catchy and have scripture on them. No. By the boldness of by which you proclaim truth in the public square. Well, that's important, but that's not how all people will know that we are his disciples. He says, by your love for one another. Love then is not a mark of the covenant community of grace. It is the mark. You see, Paul later explains to the church in Corinth in chapter 13 of that same letter what the body life is supposed to look like as we interact and use the gifts one to another. He says, I'll show you a more excellent way, and it's the way of love. And he then goes on to compare a person who's very gifted at at impressive speech. But he says, if that person with great speech doesn't have love, then it's a lot like being in your teenager's room who's taking a symbol and just bashing the symbol over and over and over, clashing it. He says, it's essentially loud, and it's annoying, and it's obnoxious. Even though you have that gift of speech, you don't have love, it's obnoxious. He he says, you could have great power, great knowledge, great faith, but if you lack love, you're nothing, you're no one. In fact, he says, you could be the most generous person in the world and even die a martyr's death, but if you're lacking love, you haven't gained a single thing. And right after that, Paul lists a series of counter-cultural practices that demonstrate love. And you've heard these before, haven't you? You've heard them at your wedding, or you've heard them at that one marriage conference you went to years ago. You've heard the the words, love is patient, love is kind, all the husbands roll their eyes and all the wives lean forward. We know these verses. But have you considered that in context, these were supposed to describe the church community? So it's not just in my marriage or, or with my relationships. No, it's in the church. So listen to these words now in context. In the church, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. In the church, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And then he goes on and says, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is not a mark in the church, it is the mark. We are a community who have been shaped together by God's grace, and that grace enables us to put others first as together we pursue Christ. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12-13, to Paul moves from gifts to love, And in the parallel passage that we're gonna study today in Romans chapter 12, Paul also moves from gifts to love. We're studying the second half of Romans chapter 12. And if you've missed a lot of the study, you've missed a lot. But uh, last week we saw how the entire chapter, chapter 12 itself is application. It's the application of verses one and two, a renewed mind, a life offered to God as a living sacrifice. The grace of God has, yes, shaped you personally, and we have the testimony of God's grace in our personal life, but it doesn't end there. His grace also directs us how we live in what we call this covenant community, what we call the church. What does it look like? What does it look like to be a part of the body of Jesus Christ? Well, it doesn't get any more practical than what Shane just read to us. This morning, if you were keeping count, there are arguably as many as 27 commands in only 12 verses. Now, uh, the danger, I need to acknowledge this, the danger of teaching a passage like this, where it's just a list, is that we get into list mode. So we sit back and we're like, all right, check, yep, next, check, yeah, I'm doing that, honey, am I doing that, check, and we go down the list and believe, well, I'm doing a good job on this, and maybe not on that, which means secondly, we also begin to get into religious performance mode. We start going, if I'm I'm doing these, I'm a good Christian boy or girl, and thus I can now earn and merit God's favor. Rather than saying that this list and understanding, this list is an overflow, right? It's a response to God's grace in our lives and then what that looks like as our life bleeds into one another's lives. So I want you to make sure and note that. Don't get into list mode today. Let's just evaluate and see, are these marks in my life? In fact, your heading may say in the ESV, marks of a true Christian. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. So we can evaluate, certainly in light of the gospel, uh, but we, all, we also have to say the Lord is doing this work in us and this is an overflow. So if we were to break this passage down into smaller sections, instead of me just listing 27 commands, then f- uh, four or five uh, verses at a time, four big themes arise out of this section. And there's a lot of ground to cover today, so let's begin with the first mark. I usually give you the full outline, we're just gonna go one by one today. Number one, what we're gonna see in this first section, verses nine and 10, is that we are a community that displays sincerity. Notice verse nine, and there's four commands here. He says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, those are kinda two of the same. Love one another with brotherly affection, and outdo one another in showing honor. Now, there are four here, but they all flow out of the first. The first command is the title of our sermon today, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. You could also, if you're taking note, you could write the word sincere, unfeigned, or literally in the Greek, without hypocrisy. So in the Greek, a hypocrite, and you've, no one wants to be called this ever, but a, a hypocrite in the Greek, was a word that you would use to describe an actor who played a part on a stage. He would get up and wear a mask and play a part. And then when he stepped down from the stage, he would remove the mask and be himself. And that's the idea, that's the idea of love being genuine. It's to be without, it's to lack hypocrisy. And so John Stott says it this way, when we talk about love in the church, love is not theater, it belongs to the real world. Yet there is such a thing as pretense love which was displayed in its vilest form in the betraying kiss of Judas. You guys remember that in the, in the garden with the disciples, in front of the disciples, Judas played the part. He played the part of a lover of Christ. But in his heart, he stepped down off the stage, and he was betraying his dear Lord. And so this happens in the church. Too many believers, we have a fear of conflict, which is really a fear of man and thus we have what I call artificial fellowship. It's not true fellowship like 1 John 1 describes where we walk in the light of truth. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. We say, yeah, you've called out sin in my life. Thank you for that. I'm going to repent of that sin, and we're going to walk together in fellowship. See, we're afraid to do that, so I don't want to call anyone out. I'll pull the punch. Not that we should punch fellow believers, but sometimes it feels like a punch when someone comes to you and says, brother, I love you, but there's sin in your life and it's very evident. And out of love for Christ, I want to I challenge you to repent. And we don't like that. We don't like people saying that to us. So we don't allow people to be sincere, nor are we sincere. So what happens is the unity and the harmony we're supposed to have is cheap plastic. Everyone's safe. Everyone's kind. And so the thing we're to have though is sincere love love that is that has sincerity. Um, Colossians 3.14, Paul describes a lot of attributes that should exist in the church, but notice what he says. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So love is what you could call the outer garment. It is, well, we don't know this analogy. It's the jacket that we wear on the outside of our clothing. We wear that one day a year, typically. I think it's coming up on Wednesday. It'll be in the well, we break the jacket out when it's 71 degrees outside and get the, get the, get the boots out and drink our pum- pumpkin spice lattes. Uh, but love is the outer garment. It binds everything together. Uh, and everything we're about to list today, uh, love is to clothe it. In fact, love is uh, essentially the um, love, loving good and hating evil. These are kind of the... the bookends or the bookmarks of the beginning and the end of this section. So secondly, not only genuine love or sincere love, secondly, we're to have sincere discernment. Notice he says that we are to hate. We are to abhor. So we're to love, but we're also to hate. And love is not the absence of hate. That's the wrong definition of love. Love rightly defined always hates. Here's what I mean. Love is not just an empty sentiment if I love someone exclusively, then by definition, I must reject and abhor anyone who threatens the welfare of the object of my love. So Jesus would say, you are to hate father and mother in your love for me. And so when we compare the love we're to have for Christ with the love we have for our families, it means we have to exclusively put our love for Christ if family ever interferes with that. Uh, And so in this case, Paul says, what are we to hate? We are to abhor what is evil. And this means with an intense sentiment, you could use the word loathing. We're to loathe evil, evil, but then he says, you're to hold fast or cleave to, join yourself to what is good. It's not just strong enough to say, yeah, turn away from evil and avoid it when you can, and then turn towards good and do what you can to be good. No, it's more like cast evil away in every way, and cling to the good without ever letting go. In the church, wouldn't you agree, there's much evil that threatens our love for God and that threatens our love for one another constantly, consistently. And what are we to do? We're to utterly reject those things, uh, and we are to cling to what is good. So you'll see this idea of evil and good again at the end of the text that we're studying today. Well, thirdly, not only sincere love, sincere discernment, but we're thirdly to have sincere loyalty. Notice that Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. Now, if we could look at this with Greek eyes, we would see two couplets, two word pictures that uh, compound together. So the first couplet is brotherly love, and the second words that go together are be devoted. Both of these um, two compound words have the uh, the root word phileo. Uh, you've heard of Philadelphia probably as an American and the city of what? What is Philadelphia known as? Brotherly love. So that's the, the root word phileo. It, it speaks of a family, fond, kindred. We're, we're a part of a family. Not like how you grew up maybe with your brother and sister and you want to kill them. Not that sort of brotherly love. But this idea that we are, we are a part of a family. And so there's a kindred, kinship. You might even be having Thanksgiving this week with them. Like I wouldn't normally do this, but I've got a, I have an obligation to meet together with this family. But see, that idea is skewed a little bit. Brotherly love is a term in the first century that was completely unique to Christianity. This idea is that whether Jew or Gentile, we are all justified and adopted into the family of God the exact same way through the propitiation of Christ's shed blood on our behalf. So if we look around the room here, we are now, those in Christ, we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And we're to be devoted to one another in a loyal covenantal relationship. Here's the way Christopher Ashe says it. He says, and maybe you've had this experience, church is not a homogenous club of people like us who would naturally have gone on vacation together. It's actually a supernatural fellowship of people very unlike us to whom we are bound with a zealous family love. So we're to have sincere love, sincere discernment, sincere loyalty, but not only that, fourthly, sincere honor. Notice that Paul says in verse 10 that we are to outdo one another in showing honor. And for someone who's highly competitive, challenge accepted, game on. I'm supposed to outdo you in showing you honor. And you can sit back and receive that and go, hey, thanks for that. I'll take that. I don't get a lot of honor in the world. Or you can take the challenge and try to outdo me. And if we're doing this together in the body, in other words, here's what, here's what honor looks like. To honor means I treat you as if you matter. And you treat me as if I hold some sort of weight, even if I don't. You treat one another as if you're significant. You treat someone as if they're worthy of recognition. That's what it means to to honor one another. In in the church in Philippi, there were at least two prominent women who were divided against one another, and the church knew about it. So listen to what Paul says early in that letter. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's what it means to show honor. You're more important than me. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, if all of us did this, we all sought to lean forward and find ways to outdo one another in honor, then much of the injury and insult that happens in the body of Christ would be healed, and a lot of these unnecessary church divisions would be mended. By the way, verse 10 here in Romans 12 is our elders theme verse. We have taken the time to, to read through scripture and to say what is a verse that we can practically model to the fellowship in our relationship as pastors. Our desires to be devoted to one another in brotherly affection and to lead the way in the church of showing honor one to another. And my prayer is that we would all seek to do this in the church. So a mark of a gospel grace-shaped church is that we're a community that displays sincerity and that happens when we die to self and we give preference to others. Now let's look at a second attribute, verses 11 through 15, and there are a lot of commands in these verses. But this I want you to look at with the context of being a community, number two, that desires to serve. Notice the commands here, verses 11 through 15. He says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Wow, that's a list, isn't it? But what I want us to focus on for a minute is notice the proactive nature of each of these commands. So so none of these are passive. None of these are inactive. In fact, notice that Paul begins in verse 11 by saying, do not be slothful in zeal. Slothful, of course, means lazy. We can all recognize sloth or laziness in work. It's easy to see. You go to work and there's a manager who's always in their office, never comes out, never leads the way. You drive by a business and they they spell the words wrong on the sign and you just kind of laugh at that. Slothful in their work. Well, as we do the Lord's work, some people have this mentality. Well, that's business. That's important. Ministry, we can cut the corners. Really? On the contrary, it's the Lord's work. It should be, it should be producing the, the most eagerness, the most diligence, because we're doing the most important work. So listen to what Jeremiah says in 48.10. He says, Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord with slackness, with slothfulness, with laziness. So Paul says in Uh, verse 11, that we are instead to be fervent in spirit. Literally in the Greek, that means to boil over with the spirit's power as you serve. Who are we serving? What does it say? What does your verse say in verse 11? Serve who? Who do we serve? Serve the Lord. So I would say if you're, and many of you are in youth ministry, if your whole point is to serve the students or to serve the parents, at one point you're going to, you're gonna be probably slothful in zeal. If my ministry, when I work with the kids next door, if my ministry is just to the kids or just to the parents, well, the boiling's gonna cool down. If our ministry is solely to people, we will easily burn out. But if we're truly serving the Lord Jesus, then that means dealing with whatever is brought our way as servants. And it will change from person to person, church to church, and even day to day. So look with me with that in mind as, at the variety of ways we can boil over with the Spirit's energy as we serve Jesus. So I want to look at the rest of those verses that we just looked at with that in mind. So I'm serving the Lord and then all these different scenarios are brought my way in the church. So I'm waiting on the Lord, my master. I'm his servant. He's the master. I'm waiting for him to return. So what can I do? Well, I can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Again, a command of action. I'm not going to give up hope. I'm not going to fret. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to whine on social media. No, I'm actively rejoicing in the confident assurance that is mine because of the gospel. Well, not only that, but I'm walking with patient endurance through tribulation. Again, that's actionable. I'm going to face sundry and diverse trials, and I'm supposed to be steadfast without ever giving up. Sometimes as I serve the Lord, there's going to be trials. But I'm also, thirdly, not to neglect prayer as I serve the Lord. I'm going to stay vigilant in intercession, and especially often that necessitates in the night watch. So instead of getting extra sleep, I need to be up in prayer and intercession. Look at verse 13. We're we're commanded to actively pursue opportunities, like we learned last week, to be a contributor to the saints who have needs. And by the way, if you want to be a contributor, that's not random. That's not haphazard. When you contribute to the needs of the saints, that is ready and that's responsive whenever a need shows up. We're also to practice hospitality, to look for opportunities to kindly welcome guests and yes, sometimes even strangers into our home. What a great week to, to do that. I encourage you, if you have a uh, relationship with your neighbors, take the opportunity to just say, hey, we're having, we, we killed a bird and we're gonna eat it. So join us and there's even dessert come on over. Uh, And and so what does that mean? Practicing hospitality means we don't fill our schedules just with our me time or our family, or we make the excuses, well, my apartment's too small and, you know, my house isn't as clean as I want it to be. Well, we're doing some construction and remodeling in the kitchen. No, we seek to show hospitality intentionally looking for ways, actively finding ways to invite people into our lives and into our homes. Well, verse 14, When we're persecuted, not if, when we're persecuted by people outside of the church and sadly often inside of the church, we're commanded to actively ask God to bless them without wishing them harm. And this is not unique to Paul. Even Jesus commanded us to love our enemies and to pray for them. And yes, as we're serving the Lord and we're in relationship one with another, someday a saint is gonna come praising God for blessing them with something, Or they're going to come and weep and lament at something they lost or were enduring. And we're commanded to come alongside them in whatever state they're in. If they want someone to share it with, the good news. I want to call someone, just tell them the good news. Or I want someone to sit by my side and just weep with me. We're called to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. So you see within these few commands, no matter what the need is in front of us, don't be slothful in zeal. Don't lean back and put up the lazy chair and say, someone will do it. No, we're to proactively allow the bubbling over, the boiling over, as we are fervent in spirit, we're to serve the Lord in whatever he asks us to serve him in. We are to be diligent to do good works. See, Paul told Titus this in Titus 2.14. He said that the Savior Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, notice this, who are zealous for good works. We talked about this last week rather strongly, that we don't show up on a Sunday seeking what we can get out of the church community as someone who is a consumer, but we seek what can I give back to the fellowship as a contributor. And I'm to be zealous for these good works. I'm to put off sloth, put off laziness, put on diligent, spirit-empowered service. We are a community that together, collectively, desires to serve. Well, thirdly, a church shaped by God's grace will, number three, be a community that demonstrates sacrifice. First Service didn't like this one very much, and I agree. This is, let's just skip this one because none of us sign up for sacrifice. I just hope to sacrifice my life today. Anyone do that today? Maybe in the back someone did. So notice what Paul says. Each one of these have to do with sacrifice. He says, first of all, live in harmony with one another. Great translation. Literally, this reads this way. Think the same thing towards one another. We just referenced Philippi. And Paul, when he wrote to the church in Philippi, Remember I told you there were two women? He actually mentioned them by name. He, we were able to capture this in the canon of scripture and immortalize it for all of eternity. Isn't this great? These two women who were fighting are now known throughout church history by name. Philippians 4.2, Paul says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. These two women may have been very influential women in the church, but their argument was loud enough and bad enough that Paul had to address it. And their names mean something actually very significant. The name Yodia, her name means a prosperous journey. If you don't know what your name means, you should find out. Yodia's name means prosperous journey. In other words, you could say she's a woman who may have arrived. She's been some places in life. Syntyche's name means pleasant acquaintance. It has the same stem in the Greek uh, from the word that means to meet with. So she may have been that person at the door of the church greeting you and who is pleasant to, to see. And she just made everyone feel welcome and at home. But the way Paul constructs this, he doesn't just say, I entreat these women. He says each one of their names separately. So in the Greek, it's, I entreat Iodia. I entreat Sentiki," I beseech you, and I beseech you. Uh, the word there is, I exhort you, or I beg you, please. These were two women in the church that were probably influential, respected, and their disagreement was enough that Paul needed to point it out. And this disagreement... Could have been about anything. We don't know what it is. But I can picture Syntyche saying to Yodia, hey, have a prosperous journey on your way to another church. And I could see Yodia saying, snapping back, saying, well, I am going to miss your pleasant acquaintance, Syntyche. But notice Paul doesn't say what it's about. He doesn't take sides. You were right, you were wrong. Uh, He doesn't say, let's get to the root issue. He doesn't say, just avoid each other. Uh, and agree you'll never be friends. No, what does he say? Agree in the Lord. Uh, earlier he says, have the same mind, the mind of Christ. Put your differences be- behind. We're not even going to mention them. What's important to mention is that you come together in the fellowship of Jesus. So l- I want you to think right now, someone who's been difficult to live in harmony with. Don't mention them by name, okay? Don't yell their name out. Don't elbow your husband if it's him. Okay. In the church... Living in harmony with people we like, that's easy. Living in harmony with people who like us, that's even easier. Living in harmony with people like-minded, that's fun. But it's difficult when people who have completely polar opposite personalities or who rub us just wrong or they land completely differently about certain issues, that's challenging, isn't it? And yet, that's who we're to live in harmony with. See, harmony is a musical term, and it's a very interesting thing. You have two singers who sing completely different parts. One's high, one's low. They're singing very distinct melodies. And yet, if a harmony's done well, those two melodies come together, and you can't discern who's singing which part. They blend together so well that you go, wow, that is a beautiful harmony. Two distinct ideas coming together to form one sound. I love this quote from A.W. Tozer, he says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. He says, so 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. See, this isn't about like, well, let's try to get on the same page. No, the same page is the mind of Christ. We agree with one another in the Lord. We tune our hearts to Christ in his word. We look to Jesus, and that means we now have agreement in the Lord. Maybe we disagree on some of these secondary issues. We don't even click personality-wise, but in the Lord, we agree. Well, how else can we demonstrate sacrifice? We need to move past this. This hurts. It hurts good. Well, look at verse 16. He says, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly and never be wise in your own sight. Ouch. Well, lowly here could mean a variety of things, but most likely in context, it's towards those of low estate. You could say those who have the least influence in the church. Has this ever happened to you? Have you had a haughty spirit? and you were only willing to associate with the great? So here's how this plays out during the greeting time. You're trying to find someone of great influence in the church. You're new. You're like, where is one of the pastors? They're important. I want to find someone who's on the stage. I don't have time to greet these other lowly, petty people. I I want the big, important people, the hot shots. Or conversely, have you said... I need to avoid, maybe you didn't say it, but have you thought, I need to avoid that person at church? You go, oh no, here's that one lady again. Oh my Lord. Or no, he made eye contact with us. We gotta move, come on. We gotta move, let's see. Or you've said, you know what? That one person goes to first service. We're gonna go to second service to just avoid them. Uh, Listen, that's being haughty. We are, and I heard Pastor Micah scoff, there's no one more important than anyone else. There's no caste system in Jesus's church the pastors, the people on the stage are not more important than anyone in this church. We're to associate with all, and Paul says, in fact, not just with everyone, but with the lowly. So one way to help not be wise in your own sight, uh, or to have your your own opinion of yourself, is to be willing to associate with all, with anyone. Uh, So essentially, one person said, look for the difficult, look for the demanding people. Look for, don't, don't avoid, look for the troubled and the broken people. Actively look for the people who may be draining and from whom we get little affirmation back. Man, that is hard to do, isn't it? So to associate with the lowly doesn't mean we avoid them, ignore them, ridicule them, but here's what it means. It means to depart out of the lofty imaginations of our own minds and to condescend like Christ to those who naturally remain overlooked. Listen, a haughty Christian is a contradiction in terms. I mean, in light of the doctrines of grace in Romans 1 through 11, our right response can and only should be awe at the mercies of God and then humility towards his people. There are many ways to demonstrate uh, sacrifice in our community, not only in the church, but also outside in the unbelieving world. In fact, some people believe the rest of this chapter is describing how we as Christians interact with a hostile world. And that certainly may be the case. But notice verse 17. As we talk about sacrifice, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. It is so easy. It is so of the flesh and natural to take revenge, to strike back when struck. But let's be clear. The no one of verse 17 can include anyone. It could include the church or the unchurch, the unbelieving. And then he says, not only don't repay evil for evil, but he says, give thought. That can also mean be careful. Be careful to do what? To do what's honorable in the sight of all. Now, when we talk about that being outside of the church, he doesn't mean try to be careful and tiptoe around doing what the world approves of as a Christian. That's not the idea at all. Like just go along with the world's generally accepted moral maxims. That's not the idea. What he's saying is be careful to live out the implications of what we believe in the gospel in a way that the gospel will not be maligned by the unbelieving world because we dishonored the gospel by living contrary to it. You guys see that? So do what's honorable as far as living out the gospel so that people don't go, yeah, the gospel isn't true because look at the contrary life that person who is supposed to represent the gospel uh, is is doing. So the world repays evil for evil, but we're not of this world. We're, we're Christians. And so we're to give thought to do what is honorable. Well, then look how realistic verse 18 is. This, is. this is so practical. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul could have certainly just commanded us to live peaceably with all, but that's not real life, is it? No, he qualifies this with the phrase, if possible, so far as it depends on On you. In other words, sometimes there cannot be shalom. There cannot be peace. We do our part. That doesn't mean we'll be living peaceably with all. We, as Christians in the world, we will never compromise, or we should never compromise, truth or biblical principles to create a safe space where postmodern tolerance maintains a pseudo peace between Christians of conviction and unbelievers who want an anything goes mentality. So so we won't have peace on those terms, the world's terms. Oh, let me just keep the peace. I won't say anything I actually believe and offend anyone. No, but the trouble we may have, the trouble we may have with others is not to be instigated. We're not to go picking a fight. He says, as far as it depends on you, the responsibility for the conflict should not be laid at your feet as a Christian. You're the one that started it. You instigated this mess. Now we know what we believe is offensive. Christ came not to bring peace, but a sword. So as Christians, we will have an offensive message to the world, but we're not to go pick a fight with people within the church. No, on our end, if someone picks a fight with us, we do what we can do to point them to the Lord, to point them to repentance, but we do our best to live peaceably with all. Charles Spurgeon says that this way, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It's his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in anything. He attaches far more importance to godly fellowship than we do. And since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. Now, I want to make this point before we get to the last point, that these three attributes we just went through, the world can mimic. So, so the world can do a knockoff of sincerity. Sometimes the world can display sincerity more than the church can. There have been some sexual abuse scandals in recent years, and that should sober us up to the reality that, hey, the church can dishonor. The church can cling to what is evil. The church can sometimes let hypocrisy rule. And sadly, the world called out the church with some of these sexual abuse scandals. And the world can sometimes outdo the church in sincerity. That that should never be the case. But the world can mimic it. Number two, the world can desire to serve not Jesus Christ, but desire to help people. I mean, just think about it, last year, every year the Community Foundation in, south, in the, in the Suncoast area um, does this big day of, of a giving challenge. You guys have heard about that. And last year, $19.1 million was given from around 59,000 local donors. So there, there's lots of people that wanna give, they wanna serve. And why is it every year that the, the, like the Humane Society gets the biggest donations, right? It's always the Cat Foundation that, that gets the most donations. Why is that? Uh, I mean, we, we could say, we could post on Facebook, beach cleanup this Saturday, and we'll have homeless people showing up ready to, ready to serve the community right off the streets. We're gonna pick up trash. People want to serve, they desire to serve. Well, like the church, the world can also demonstrate sacrifice. People can live sacrificial lives. Look at Gandhi. The world can mimic these things. And that's why this fourth section is so important. You see, this is what really sets us apart as believers. And you'll see why I'm emphasizing this the way I am in a moment. But our final idea from Romans 12 is that a church that has been shaped by the grace of God is, number four, a community that depends on scripture. You'll see why we do this, why we emphasize this. It's not explicit, but it's implicit in the text. I want you to watch for it. Okay, notice verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, quote, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. So note with me what Paul's commanding. He says, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For the world, revenge is just an instinct. It's just a natural reaction. It's just the only viable solution when someone wrongs you. So the natural man will respond with being mistreated with a tit-for-tat retaliative response. You cut me off in traffic back there, it's my turn, I'm going to cut you off now. That's just the response the world has naturally. It reminds me of the old man who went to see his doctor. And uh, he goes in, to run some tests and the doctor says, oh, sir, after running some tests, you have rabies. Well, the man panicked and he pulled his piece of paper out and began feverishly writing. And the doctor thought, oh, he thinks that he's gonna die. He doesn't know rabies is treatable, he's writing his will. And so he says, he reassures him, no, sir, no, <laughs> rabies is treatable, uh, you're, you're good, you don't, you're not gonna die, you don't need to write your will just yet. And the old man responded, oh, no, I'm not writing my will. Now that I know I have rabies, I'm writing a list of people I want to go bite. (laughs) See, that's how the world responds. Just avenge yourself. Avenge your parents, Bruce Wayne. Let's see, how does the church respond? Who are we? Well, Paul says in verse 19, how does he address us? He calls us beloved. Guys, we're distinct from this world. We are the loved of the Father we have a greater solution than the world's vengeance. We don't just go out and get revenge. Don't just go out and avenge yourself. No. We can leave room for God's sovereign judgment to take place. And how do we do that? Well, here it is. I told you to look for this. Paul says, this is how we do it. We have the revelation of God given to us in a form that we can read, study, and apply to the most practical areas of our lives. He says, it is written. How? How do I not... Avenge myself. How do I leave it to the, to the wrath of God? He says, because the Bible tells me so. Because we have God's revelation, we have the scriptures. The, the Bible says, and he quotes Deuteronomy 32:35, the vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Now, he doesn't just leave off the negative, don't avenge yourselves. But notice he says, to the contrary, and he gives another scriptural reference. He quotes Proverbs 25, 21, and 22, where we're told to feed bread to our enemy and to give drink to them when they're thirsty. And if we do that, then we'll heap burning coals on their head. So you hear that and you go, I'm supposed to feed my enemy bread. Can I lace it with x lax I'm supposed to give them water. Can it be boiling water for them to drink? Oh, I'm going to heap burning coals. Now I'm in. Let's do this. No, no some people believe that the burning coals on the enemy's head is is the guilt and the shame your enemy will feel when you take their evil and you repay it with kindness. Okay, it could be that, but that still seems to have a vindictive spirit. I'm doing this deed just to get those burning coals of shame and guilt on your head. That seems vindictive. But see, in Egyptian literature, whenever a penitent person carried a bowl of coals of fire upon their head, that meant that there is a deed of love done to them that caused them to have a dynamic change of mind. So the deed of love turned that enemy into now a friend. And that seems to be Paul's argument. Paul is saying, no, don't avenge yourself. Let the the Lord do that, meaning in eschatological terms, end time terms, at the end of time, God will enact vengeance upon his foes. And so we don't have to just go out and get vengeance. We can trust God to do it. In fact, these words, vengeance and wrath and forgiveness, these are all debt terms. These are words we use in terms of debt. So when someone is hurting you, what do you say? He owes me. That's a debt term. Or I'll make her pay. That's a term of debt. What we forget is that God's accounting is never mistaken. God's accounting is always just. Vengeance doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him, and he will repay each person according to their works. Now, we're going to pause Roman study as we go into Luke chapter 1 and 2 for Advent next week, but at the beginning of January, we're going to be in Romans 13, and we look down just a few verses after this, and Paul explains there is a provisional way in the current age through which God's vengeance and justice is to be carried out through governmental agents who have been instituted by God, as a servant of good who bears the sword. And we'll get into that. It'll be a great study as we get into government. Um, So what Paul's saying here is don't replace God with retributive action. Trust in the sovereignty of God. Not just in the moment, like just in the moment, God will get vengeance for you. No, I think he has in mind the end where God punishes all unrighteousness and ungodliness. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. So we as Christians, because of the Scripture, we're commanded, don't take revenge like everyone else, but look ahead to eternity. And the basis for all of this is Holy Scripture. The world says, do this Because of science? Do this because the New Age guru told you to do it? Do this because it's the the newest thing. It's pop psychology. It's the new trend. It's trending today. No, we have a more sure and proven source of truth. It doesn't change from generation to generation, uh, from person to person. It is the unchanging, inerrant truth of God's word. Well, finally, verse 21, he says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Remember, this is similar to verse nine. These are bookends of the section. We abhor evil and hold fast, cling to what is good. And then at the end, if we're treated in an evil way, don't add more evil to it, but overcome that evil with good. Don't stoop to your enemy's level. Rise above it by being Christ-like. Spurgeon said, you know the old saying, maybe you don't. <laughs> returning, evil for evil is as, uh, returning evil for good is devil-like evil for evil is beast-like, good for good is man-like, and good for evil is godlike. Rise to that god-like point. So the explicit command in verses 19 through 21 is overcome evil with good. But implicitly, Paul's appeal comes to us. Where's the appeal come from? From scripture. So a church that has been shaped by God's grace is a community where we collectively depend upon the revealed will of God through the revealed word of God. We don't have to settle debts in the church or with the world because we believe in the eschaton that God will judge the living and the dead. We can love our enemies and even those who mistreat us. Why? Because the scriptures command us to. But the scriptures also record for us the life of Jesus himself who demonstrated the very things that we read here even to those who crucified him. And in fact, if we go back and we opened with 1 Corinthians 13, if you go back and read that, and we encourage our premarital counselees who are about to get married to go and read your name into 1 Corinthians 13, it's an exercise in discouragement. When you read, pilgrim is patient, ooh, that hurt. Pilgrim is kind, ooh. So it's it's a painful thing. But if you go back and read Jesus's name in 1 Corinthians 13, because God is love, you go, oh yeah, Christ is patient. Christ is kind. Christ doesn't envy. Christ doesn't boast. And if we were to do the same thing with this text, we could read each of these commands and see Jesus. If we evaluate each of these commands in light of the life of Christ, we see Jesus loving his own who were in the world and laying down his life for his friends. We see Jesus giving honor to those that everyone in Jerusalem, Judea, were overlooking. And we see Jesus being willing to associate with the most lowly, even putting his hands upon the leper. We see Jesus constant in prayer, even sweating drops of blood as he poured out his heart to the Father. We see Jesus on the cross praying forgiveness for those who crucified him. And Jesus overcame the greatest evil act ever commanded in the cosmos by displaying the greatest good which had ever been done in all of creation, and that is laying down his life in submission to the Father's just plan. You see, the commands in this text, verses nine through 21, these are not probable nor even possible outside of the four walls of this church. In other words, we're not gonna take a little field trip after service to the Kiwanis Club, to the Elks Lodge, which used to meet here in this building, by the way. We're not going to go to the VFW or the PTA or the HOA and say, hey, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. No, see, we're a community that's been shaped by God's grace. We're living lives that are not ashamed of the gospel of God for the glory of God. And so the church, this is not just a social gathering. We are the people of God. We're not merely an organization. We're a living organism. We're the body of Christ. We're not merely an institution. We're a movement of the Spirit of God called out of darkness, chosen in Him, holy, beloved, and set apart from this world. So these things are only possible by the Holy Spirit who has been given to the church. And this is a natural outflow of abiding in the vine. In fact, we're about to sing these words, but listen to these words the Gettys wrote in the song, O Church, Arise. What a great anthem for us to close our service singing because we need the power of the Holy Spirit to do these things. He, they sing, So Spirit come, put strength in every stride. Give grace for every hurdle, that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant, good and faithful. As saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace, we hear their calls, and we hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. That's our prayers. that we be the church that the gates of hell will not prevail against. That we'd be a community that displays sincerity, that desires to serve one another, that demonstrates sacrifice even when it's painful, and that depends on scripture. None of that is possible in this world, and none of that is possible in your own energy. This is all the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit among a redeemed people who collectively have renewed minds. The imperative, as he said last week, the imperative flows out of the indicative. It is the love of Christ which compels us to do these things. And so may we not try to leave today going, check, 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 be a good Christian boy, now God loves me. No, may we say, he first loved us, therefore we can love. Because of the work of Christ that's finished for me, his righteousness imputed to me, I'm now justified. One day I'll be glorified. In between that time, I'm being sanctified. I join with the Spirit's work and allow him to do that work of genuine love among a people who are very hard to genuinely love. I love the story, uh, the conversion story of a man by the name of Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. That's his actual name. And yes, he was a count. Uh, In 1710, Zinzendorf was 19 years old and godless. He had finished university study in Europe, and as most university students did, they would embark at the end of their study on a grand tour of Europe. So he went through Germany, Holland, France, Switzerland, and he gets to Dusseldorf. In this small museum, as he's planning to live his life completely in the world, his eyes gazed upon the painting by uh, Domenico Fidi of Jesus before Pilate, as Pilate says, here is the man, from John 19. Very famous painting. As he looked at the the dignity mixed with the sorrow, the crown of thorns with the purple robe, Zinzendorf was cut to the heart, and then his eyes fell, as many people's eyes do to this painting, fell to the bottom of the painting, where in Latin, Jesus' words read, this have I suffered for you. Now, what will you do for me? He was absolutely cut to the heart. He repented of his sin and he trusted Christ and eventually went on to be uh, a great prominent leader among the Moravian church. So beloved, in light of the gospel, as we view the finished work of Christ on our behalf, what will our response be? Will we be the church that conforms to the world like Corinth, that falls into hypocrisy or apostasy? Or will we be the church that rises up and walks in genuine love and demonstrates to the world something so otherworldly that they stop and stare and they ask us for the reason for the hope that is in us. My prayer is that we will learn how to walk in these commands, not by law-keeping, but by the grace of God for his glory and for our collective good. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and we're going to close being reminded that we need to rise up as a church. So bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for the finished work of Christ. to tell us, that it is finished. We don't add a single thing to the work that's been done. We are now made right with the Father. Your righteousness has been imputed to us because of Christ's finished work. So we glory in the cross and the resurrection this morning. But Lord, as spirit-empowered Christians, we also rest in the work of the Spirit who enables us to do these things. Lord, in our flesh, we do not want to love. We do not want to build harmony. We want to live a self-centered life, not a selfless life. So Spirit of God, would you do this work in us? We ask, Lord, not that we'd leave today trying to be good or better, trying to do harder work, trying to be zealous and to motivate ourselves. Lord, that you would do that work in us. God, we pray that we would arise, that we would hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory with those almost innumerable saints throughout time who have all called on the name of the Lord. We've overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony. Lord, we thank you for these things. We trust you to do that work in us, in each one of us in the coming years as we together seek to make much of Jesus in our community. We love you, Lord. We ask these things in the name above every name, the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisishoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.